Hi, everybody. Stefan Molyneux from Freedom Main Radio. I hope you're doing well. Well, we've had the second of what seems like an infinite series of dominoes leading the Republicans and the Democrats to choose their virtual democracy cage fight matches against each other. First in Iowa last week, won by Ted Cruz and just by a hair on her chinny-chin-chin Hillary Clinton over Bernie Sanders. Now we've just had New Hampshire won by, I guess, more than twice the vote of the next contender, Kasich, Donald Trump. So um, the first thing that I was sort of thinking about with regards to this horse race is that um, Trump uh, won, of course, in New Hampshire. He spent about half a million dollars of his own money. Bush came in fourth. Was it fourth, Mike? Yeah, he came in fourth. It broke down Trump first, then Kasich, a distant second, and then uh, Cruz, an even more distant third, and then Jeb Bush. Cruz just beat out Jeb Bush by a hair. I think it was 0.7%. Uh, so if you're coming that close to Bush, that's not a great sign, but yeah. And I'm going to assume that uh, out of Christian goodwill and forgiveness, it was Ben Carson who donated the votes to Ted Cruz to help him just get over that hump. But Bush <laughs> Not in spent one. 30. So Trump gets first place by like a very, very wide margin. He spent five, half a million dollars of his own money. Bush at fourth place spent $36 million of other people's money. And if that isn't an example of the benefit of private versus public, I simply don't know what is. Oh, well, you have to look at this too. The actual breakdown per vote uh, in Iowa, Jeb paid $2,800 per vote. <laughs> and, Can't buy uh, me love. In New Hampshire, it wasn't quite as bad. It was only twelve hundred dollars per vote. But Jeb Bush's entire candidacy is—I uh, just find it to be hilariously entertaining. And uh, the biggest oh, thing to come out of New Hampshire is the just the fact that the political establishment is currently engulfed in flames with the rise of Bernie Sanders and uh, Donald Trump overtaking the entire atmosphere in the Republican convention. So. Well, I think that Jeb Bush's basic philosophy is to look at America as a gold-digging whore. And <laughs> the idea basically is that I can replace charisma with money. Like, I'm not handsome, I'm not charismatic, but I'm exceedingly rich and will spend a lot of money on you. I think that's – it's the it's husband of the Anna Nicole Smith uh, approach to marriage. That's the only thing I can think of because, man, uh, he is just – doing dismally all around. Well, see, that seems to be working a whole lot better for Bernie Sanders, who's just offering to absolve student debts and replacing charisma with offering to give free stuff to people. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, it's not working so well on the Republican side of things. Now, the other thing I thought was fascinating was, boy, I mean, the, the, the media bias has been around forever, but it's just fascinating to see when people don't play by the media's rules, just how ridiculous the bias and how obvious the bias becomes. And we'll talk about the Huffington Post in a second. <laughs> so the establishment media kept uh, saying to uh, Donald Trump, you know, how does it feel to have lost in Iowa? Is this a bad loss for you in Iowa? You lost in Iowa. And, you know, he kept saying, look, I came in second. I wasn't even a politician until seven months ago and I came in second. That's not really that much of a loss. And uh, by the way, Ted Cruz seems to have gotten in by taking, let's say, somewhat surreptitiously, a whole bunch of Ben Carson's votes. So they called Donald Trump a loser for getting in second place in Iowa. Now, how do you think they referred to the second place winner in New Hampshire, the establishment-based Kasich? Did they call him a loser? I'm going to guess not nearly as much. <laughs> and you would be entirely correct in that. 
Stunning breakthrough by Kasich. He's, he's within a hair's breadth of conquering the known universe. He can walk <laughs> backwards through time. Gold. He snorts it when he sneezes into his handkerchief. It was just amazing. Trump's a loser for coming in second because he's non-establishment. Kasich is a total hero and triumphant winner for coming in uh, second. I mean, <laughs> well, remember this. In Iowa, too, Rubio, who came in third, was a huge winner. Trump second, loser. And this time, Rubio, I think, came in fifth. Uh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if the media's weighed in if he's a winner or not for this, <laughs> for coming in fifth. But uh, his campaign seems to be imploding as we currently speak. Did you? Uh, so I was I was looking at some comments, um, and oh dear, somebody posted. Yeah, somebody posted a link to the Huffington Post. Oh, Huffington Post, how whimsical thou art. <laughs> And I thought it was a satire. I literally, I thought it was a satire, you know, the, the world becoming the onion in its inexorable way. And what happened was on the Huffington Post in giant red, you know, 82 point, I can't see a thing in my optometrist font style. New Hampshire goes racist, sexist, homophobic. That, that, was, their in, that was their coverage <laughs> impartial, unbiased coverage of the election. I literally, I'm like, nah, that's got to be a fake. That, that can't be real. So I went to Huffington Post, and it was. Mm-hmm. New Hampshire goes racist, sexist, homophobic. Big flaming demon text right there in the <laughs> middle of the page. Now, to be fair, I think somebody recognized that might be giving the game away a little bit. Might be a smidgen of an overreach. And I think about 20 minutes later, it had been replaced by something slightly toned down. Uh, in the same way that first-degree murder can be slightly toned, toned down to manslaughter. But uh, that was what the Huffington Post, I mean, just absolutely astonishing. Uh, and I hope that that uh, is just one more nail in the coffin of that leftist love fest. Oh, the biggest thing that come out of this entire campaign season, um, you know, as a principled non-voting anarchist on average for me, is just watching the destruction of the political establishment and be the destruction of the media and people continuing to shoot themselves in the foot across the political spectrum. You have Republicans, you have Democrats, and you have libertarians and people of all different persuasions just continuing to destroy their credibility in rapid fashion. And there's so much evidence in it at this point that if you don't understand why people like Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders are capturing popularity in the American political field versus the establishment candidates, you really don't deserve to be putting pen to paper and writing anything at this point. Oh, the, uh, the degree to which the average small government Republicans loathe with a cold, resonating, chill-blain anger the Republican establishment. You know, it's one thing to be betrayed by your enemies, and that you kind of expect. You know, the fact that the Democrats are going for bigger government all the time and uh, are constantly race-baiting and class-baiting and gender-baiting. You kind of accept that. It's the et tu brute backstab of the people who claim to be your friends that really burns. And that is what is driving, uh, I think, the motivation for both Bernie Sanders and for Trump. And um, You just said Mitch McConnell come out and say they're not going to oppose any of Obama's policy agendas moving forward because they don't want it to interfere with the campaign, you know, because it might be brought up in a negative connotation that they're opposing something that Obama wants between now and the general election. That doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever, but uh, yeah, gee, I can't imagine why people hate the establishment Republicans these days. <laughs> All right, let's dip into the eminent domain thing. Oh, there's a lot um, to say on the eminent domain thing. Have you seen the brand new Ted Cruz commercial? On eminent I domain. Oh, it's delightful. Not. It's delightful. I'll explain it to you real quick. It's got a yeah. bunch of kids playing with what looks like a Donald Trump action figure and a Hillary Clinton action figure. And the kids start bashing um, a play dollhouse apart with the uh, Donald Trump action figure. 
talking about how you know Trump favors eminent domain and likes bulldozing grandmothers' houses yeah. for limousine parking lots, and uh, then the parents come in and they're like, "Ooh, we don't we don't like these values that our our kids are showing." And this this is amusing. The whole eminent domain thing is just hysterical because, of course, everyone's ragging on Trump about eminent domain. If people have a problem with violations of property rights, uh, taxation falls into that category, and all the politicians, all the political candidates currently support taxation. So, yeah, from a principled standpoint, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And, of course, all these Republican candidates have previously supported da-da-da, eminent domain. Clips from Ted Cruz supporting eminent domain have come out recently. Jeb Bush. Clips have come out with him supporting eminent domain. Of course, his father supporting eminent domain. And <laughs> everyone wants the Keystone Pipeline on the Republican side. How are they going to pay for that? How are they going to get that done? Eminent domain. All the people that are uh, copying Donald Trump's policy of wanting to build a wall on the southern United States border. How are they going to build the wall? Eminent domain. They're going to need to take the land through eminent domain in order to build a wall. So... The eminent domain issue just continues to be amusing to me because there seems to be no consistency or attempt to make any kind of sense across the political spectrum on the on the subject. Well, em, no, eminent domain is one of the um, it's it's just the red, red it's the red rag in front of the bull, you know, because <laughs> it, eminent domain is one of these things that uh, libertarians and small government Republicans ah, eminent domain <laughs> and you know, and it's it's just one of these things that that just makes people. Um, go kind of crazy and, and not put things in perspective. So, you know, my sort of Pascal's wager or my wager for people is to say, okay, if you could be free of one thing and one thing only and you could choose between being subject to eminent domain <laughs> or being taxed, which would you choose? <laughs> because taxation is going to happen 100% of the time, even while you're sleeping. And taxation is a form of eminent domain because if you don't pay your property taxes, your property will be taken away. So property taxes and taxes as a whole, that's the real violation of property rights. And uh, if you could choose to be free of one, Mike, let's just say no taxes ever again in the future, but you'll be subject to eminent domain or freedom from the risk of eminent domain, but paying taxes forever. What would you choose? I have a tougher time deciding between mass Muslim immigration and eminent domain. Personally, I mean, you know, beheading <laughs> versus possibly having my property taken from me, even though my property is already being taken from me through further force. God, I don't know. Tough one. Well, and wasn't... Um, wasn't Jeb Bush talking that um, it was because he said, well, eminent domain for private profit is really bad. But he's for the Keystone Pipeline, as far as I understand it. And then Donald Trump pointed out that the Keystone Pipeline is for private profit. And he said, no, 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 it's a it's a public uh, it's a public partnership. It's all public and so on. And I don't I mean, that's not even that's not even remotely close. That's an example of just winning in the moment, saying anything to, to kick up dust, win in the moment. And then being slowly pulled apart, you know, like a dead swimmer by feeding frenzy sharks in the blogosphere after the fact, because it is largely private profits that are driving um, the Keystone Pipeline. I'm embarrassed to admit how much I enjoy the Donald Trump, Jeb Bush interactions in the debates. I actually watched a, a compilation of the highlights over the course of the last several debates. And uh, oh, I just... I love Jeb Bush. I really do. I just, I love watching Jeb Bush completely ineffectually attempt to attack Donald Trump in every debate and continue to get, uh, you know, his head stuffed in the toilet bowl and get him locked in his locker throughout the entire proceeding. <laughs> it is, um, it's, it's like watching my accountant go up against the Incredible Hulk. Um, <laughs> I, I'm not happy that I like watching it. I just can't deny that I do. I mean, it's just, 
one of these things that um, you and, – and the other thing too as far as uh, eminent domain goes is that the Bush family has been uh, part ownerships of some football team I think who used eminent domain to build their stadium which largely profits the largely tax-exempt NFL. So uh, it just seems like you're a little bit on shaky ground, Dr. Bush – Mr. Bush rather for uh, pointing out uh, uh, eminent domain abuses because Donald Trump didn't actually end up being able to take this woman's house. She fought him in court. He dropped it and he was willing to offer her uh, many times the value of the house, uh, the house. I think he said it would be even the 90s, the house that he wanted to take. He said, I'd be willing to go to five million bucks to take it away. Uh, And it ended up being sold for like, I don't know, half a million dollars uh, a year or two ago. So uh, it would have been another one of those weird things where the propaganda has completely eclipsed the reality of the situation. Now he's taken the house, he's bulldozed the house, even though that never happened. And yes, there was a court battle. And yes, it's not particularly great. I don't particularly think eminent domain is wonderful or anything. But um, on the grand scale of priorities and things to be concerned about in my immediate future, eminent domain doesn't make the top 100 list, personally. So, Right, right. Now, the degree of hatred that a lot of Republicans have for the existing Republican establishment, I think, cannot be over. <laughs> cannot Orders be over. Magnitude. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, it is. Uh, it is horrendous. Um, they actually, a lot of them really dislike the Bush ta- tax cuts because the Bush tax cuts um, actually um, got rid of a lot of low income taxes, uh, and and that made, of course, a big problem because uh, you you will generally not. Um, oppose tax increases if you're not paying taxes. It's one of these basic realities of uh, of democracy. Um, the Bush tax cuts they, they remove tax liability from the bottom twenty to forty percent of the population, uh, the income population, completely. Like <clears throat> no taxes. So now almost half of tax file filers pay zero federal income tax, and that's kind of a problem because it divided the country into two: those who pay federal income taxes and those who don't. Uh, and of course, those who don't are now fertile ground for voting left, and they consider that to be uh, kind of a a big problem. And th- these kinds of subtleties for p- people who don't follow this stuff uh, generally get kind of missed, right? I mean, the GOP had uh, full control of the White House and Congress. Did they secure the borders? They did not. Uh, did they balance the budget when they had White House and the Congress uh, controlled? No, uh, they can't even get a budget written uh, at the moment. Uh, they, they can't, um, with the full control of the House and Senate, they can't pass the fiscal year 2016 budget. And uh, it's just uh, a- a- amazing. Who, who eliminated the debt ceiling, which was one of the leverages that was able to be used to control spending uh, from Obama? GOP didn't just raise it. <laughs> to hell with raising it. They just eliminated it completely. Not even like they put up a fight. And that's yeah. what people are upset about. It's just like, eh, fine. Here's the omnibus spending bill. Paul Ryan, who was put in place, you know, to fight against this stuff. And first thing he does when he gets in there is sign a deal that every Republican, except for those currently drawing a check from the federal government, currently hates. So way to go, Paul Ryan. No surprise. Yeah. T- GOP handed uh, the, the, the TSA to the American people, the Patriot Act to the uh, American people. And, of course, under Bush, they expanded Medicare to include prescription drug coverage, particularly for the elderly. And there was a precursor to Common Core, which is loathed by uh, just about everyone except teachers unions, uh, called Race to the Top. And that was the uh, GOP. And uh, this is just one of, of many, many problems that the Republicans, uh, the voting Republicans have with the existing Republican Party. There's no faith. I think, you know, as we've talked about before, um, the GOP um, 
uh, had, worked strongly against Rand Paul uh, and against Ted Cruz and against uh, they even worked very hard against Ronald Reagan way back in the day. And currently they're working very hard to undermine Donald Trump. So these are politicians extremely popular with the rank and file and they follow these politicians and they see the GOP party machinery uh, in Washington working actively against people that they really like uh, and respect. And again, there's, there's no, you, you, you know, in order to truly hate something, you have to love it first and then be viciously betrayed. And uh, I think that uh, third column coming into the GOP, you know, I, th- I think for them it's like, oh, we have this lovely civilized Roman system set up and I do believe there is a rather stinky barbarians coming across the gates. <laughs> uh, and I think that, that they really just have lost the core base of Republican voters and they just, they just want to smash the party machinery and Donald Trump is the wrecking ball to do that. Well, and the only reason that Donald Trump is in a position to do that is because he's not beholden to corporate interest and donors. So we can bring up these issues which are not popular amongst the donor class, as evidenced by the last Republican debate where the entire donor class and the audience proceeded to boo Donald Trump vociferously for bringing up issues. (laughs) Oh, booing Donald Trump. I mean, this is, again, things that I didn't know about. You know, I don't know who the heck – I mean, things that I thought I'd never know about in my life is who sits in the audience at these primaries you know, for, for all of this. Uh, sorry, for the debates. Who sits in the audience for the debates? I don't know. I just, like, who picks up an iPhone? People who've been camping for three weeks. I don't know. Like, I mean, <laughs> and, and the fact is when, when, when he was pushing back against Jeb Bush, there was this big resounding set of boos. Now, Jeb Bush was polling in the low or medium middle single digits at the time. And I was like, well, that seemed, seemed like a lot of boos, <laughs> given <laughs> how few people support the guy. And then Donald Trump points out, he says, look, we tried to get tickets for our people. But they said, no, the tickets are all going out to donors and, and all of that. So these are all of the corporate and political interest groups that are funding the campaigns who get into the audience. And I thought, wow, that really does skew the response of the crowd. To, and the fact that he pointed it out, again, Never thought I'd ever know anything like that, but I really respect Donald Trump for pointing that out and just reminding everyone how stacked the deck is against uh, outsiders or people who aren't taking this kind of money. Well, you know, it's interesting, too, because I I was looking into possibly getting tickets for one of the early debates just because, you know, it's a big cultural movement that's going on. Interested to see it firsthand. And getting tickets was next to impossible. I think this was a Colorado debate. And you think, you know, 20 plus million people watching some of these debates live on television, they could probably very easily sell out an arena or a stadium for this type of thing. And man, wouldn't that be just a wonderful thing to show people for those that believe in democracy and believe in the political process to show that many people engaged and interested showing up to watch people talk about the issues and everything. Wouldn't that be wonderful? But instead, no, they get these small venues where they cram people together and they don't sell tickets and don't make it publicly accessible. And the question is why? And I think we find out why when stuff like uh, the last debate happens where Donald Trump is getting booed for bringing up stuff that goes against the political establishment. Oh, well, if you let in the general populace, the unwashed masses, you're not going to be able to control the narrative nearly as well if you just bring in people that, you know, are willing to attend the 10,000 a plate dinners and support political action committees. So... Yeah, why aren't they letting the general unwashed masses into debates and that type of thing? Well, because they don't want reactions, unlike uh, those that you may see at Donald Trump rallies. (laughs) There's only one way the cow gets invited to dinner, Mike, and it's not very pretty. (laughs) Does not get a seat at the table, gets a squishy bit on the plate, uh, usually underdone. Uh, Now, I'd like to talk just a smidge about Ted Cruz, CNN, and Dr. Ben Carson. Oh, there's a lot to discuss there. Why don't you start? You, you've 
you've read a bit more about this than I have. But have you heard that Ted Cruz is the most consistent conservative, Steph? Have you heard that? Has that been beaten into your skull repeatedly, nonstop? Have you seen a propaganda poster, advertising campaign, consistent conservative, consistent conservative? Did you know that? Do you know what his real name is? <laughs> Rafael Cruz? Rafael Cruz. Yeah, you know. I feel culturally appropriated from. <laughs> I feel that he's wasped up his name uh, from what? It's Rafael Edward Cruz, and now he goes by Ted. That's like me going by Baz. <laughs> Because my middle name is Basil, which would probably be appropriation from Iran. But anyway, um, so, so yes, I have heard that he is very much a consistent conservative, an honorable, decent, God-fearing man whose, daughter's, uh, whose daughter continually squirms to get away from his embrace. Because he's a spanker. But anyway, okay, so go on. Oh, yeah. If you haven't seen that video, folks, uh, Ted Cruz trying this. to kiss his daughter on the campaign trail, it's, uh, oh, God, it's revolting. Like, no, no, ow, ow. And she's just squirming away from him, and it's like, oh... If his daughter yeah, was 18, yeah. she'd probably be voting for Trump. <laughs> we'd be dating Trump. But anyway. Um, okay, so, so for those who don't know, uh, there was a bit of a kerfuffle in uh, Iowa uh, that may have actually swung the election um, against what the polls were saying. So do you want to give us a, a smidge of a backstory there? Yeah, well, there was a couple things that happened in Iowa regarding Ted Cruz that people were upset about. The first was a mailer he sent out to people. Um, very targeted to people, try and drive the vote to get people out to vote, specifically people that were likely to vote for him. And he sent out this form that very much looked like an official government document saying voter violation and uh, actually showed uh, the neighbors, had the names of people's neighbors and gave them a grade on their voting, I guess, for their voting participation. And um, this type of thing has been done before. Barack Obama actually did it in the last general election um, to drive the vote. And it works as far as getting people out to vote, but it also works as far as pissing people off. And he succeeded in doing that pretty strongly, including having some people from the Iowa uh, political establishment come out and condemn what he did there. So Ted Cruz was going for broke. He spent a lot of money in New Hampshire. That was, or excuse me, a lot of money in Iowa. And if he didn't show well in Iowa, it was not going to be good for Ted Cruz's campaign. So he pulled out that stop. And they also pulled out the stop of uh, using a pretty innocent story from CNN where they said Ben Carson, immediately after the Iowa primary, was going to take and go back home and get a fresh change of clothes and then, then resume campaigning. And Ted Cruz's, <laughs> Ted Cruz's campaign people sent out letters to people at the precincts um, for the caucus process saying that Ben Carson is dropping out of the race and to tell Not people, letters, right? It was pretty immediate, right? Yeah, it was pretty immediate. Like message, there's, emails, there's text, emails that, that are available. There was yeah. tweets that went out. And this is going to the people that are representing the Ted Cruz campaign directly at the caucus locations, and they're telling people that Ben Carson is dropping out of the race, and they, they should caucus for Ted Cruz. And oddly enough, Karl Rove actually did something about this. Karl Rove, <laughs> not a friend of Donald Trump, not a friend of uh, anyone that is sane. Um, and, and if Karl Rove is your voice of conscience, you are not in a merry place. Yeah, this is a quote from Karl Rove about this situation. He said, They sent us to nearly 1,500 precinct captains. There are um, 150 precincts in the state, and they also sent this message to Spence Roberts. Um, now, why does this matter? Now, the gap between Donald Trump and Ted Cruz was 6,239 votes. There's the 1,500 precincts. If you do the math, that message cost Carson four votes per precinct to switch to Cruz. Then Cruz beats Trump. So if that message cost Carson four votes per precinct, and those votes switch to Cruz, then Cruz beats Trump in Iowa. 
So it doesn't take a whole lot to swing the entire election. And well, and of course, if, you, if you're dedicated to voting for Dr. Carson, and then some guy comes up and says, did you hear Dr. Carson is dropping out of the race, there's no point voting for him, you're going to switch to someone. And of course, if it's the Ted Cruz guy saying, then he's going to get a chance by delivering that message to give you a quick pitch for Ted Cruz and all that kind of stuff. And of course, if you were for Trump, then you probably would have been already going to vote for Trump. If you were going to vote for Ben Carson, then your next most likely person to vote for is another fairly establishment uh, candidate like Ted Cruz. So uh, I think that they targeted the Carson voters, but with this erroneous false story that he was dropping out of the race, knowing that the votes were going to accumulate to them, not to, uh, not to Donald Trump. Well, Carson has a lot of strong evangelical support. And although Trump has had some strong evangelical support as well, Ted Cruz does do very well in that demo. So it's, it's just another in a long line of very interesting decisions by the Cruz campaign, which certainly don't paint them in the most positive of lights when looked at from any objective standpoint. Well, and just to put this in perspective, though, I used to, of course, do a lot of uh, uh, co-founded a software company, did a lot of sales. And, you know, the one thing I learned very early on is you don't don't diss your competitors, you know, just be honest about their strengths and weaknesses and why you think your solution is better. Now, if uh, if uh, I read somewhere that uh, we, let's say we were up for some million dollar contract and it was us and some other company. And uh, I read that the CEO of that company was going to take a couple of days off. And then I translated that. And, and went to the clients and said, listen, you, they, this company's going out of business. They are going out of business. They're out of cash. They're facing bankruptcy. And it's, uh, it's going to be filed in the next couple of days. That would be such an egregious falsehood. Like, it, it's, a, it's an absolutely horrible way to do business. That would be such an egregious falsehood. Like, if word got out, my career would be done. Done. Nobody would ever trust me again. Uh, I would never make another sale that I can think of. Uh, I would be fired. Uh, I don't know what else might happen. But that would be such an egregious falsehood to plant in a client's ear that um, it would be inconceivable to do that. But apparently, (laughs) software sales kind of cutthroat, but it's nothing close to what's going on. The fact that someone can have a career after doing something like this or I don't know whether he was consulted or not. It doesn't really matter. I mean, you know, the buck stops uh, at the head of the campaign, which is the candidate. Um, how can someone have a career after that? It's just astounding. It just shows how lax any kind of ethical standards are in the political arena. Well, even in the aftermath, Cruz has tried to blame CNN for reporting this story, even despite the fact that they never reported that Carson was dropping out of the race. And there was a series of tweets and also a, an on-air conversation about Carson going back home instead of immediately resuming his campaign. And at no point in there did it say that Carson was dropping out. And even... At some point, um, in the tweets, the series of tweets, I think it went out like a minute later, they even said that Carson was resuming for the prayer breakfast in, I believe, I want to say Washington, D.C. That might not be correct. But, um, yeah, so there was, it's not like CNN put out a false story and then the wheels were in motion, it didn't get corrected until later. This was just a complete fabrication by the Cruz campaign, political opportunism, which, you know, not too surprising in politics, it's a dirty business. But the fact that it was perpetrated against Carson, who... Carson's one of the few people that hasn't gone negative. And there's a lot of things about Carson you can say. But uh, he seems to be generally well-liked. It's like, this is a a nice, decent man who's trying to do what he thinks is best, whether you agree with it or not, in the campaign or not. And, uh, yeah, the fact that he did it to Carson, it's... uh, you know, if you did it to Trump or Jeb Bush or someone else, it's like, okay, you know, <laughs> everyone throws fire. That that happens. But the fact that it happened to Carson is a little low. And also, the idea that Carson would drop out on the day 
of the Iowa caucuses in and of itself is absolutely like, you know, I'm going to make my decision to drop out 15 minutes before the Iowa caucus where I've put in all this time. And he actually had one of his campaign volunteers die uh, campaigning in Iowa. Uh, actually, when you say and- he had one of his campaign <laughs> volunteers die, that sounds a bit sinister. You know, the guy had suggested something unethical, so Carson was under his van cutting the brakes. <laughs> no. they, they, yeah, they, they drove uh, and uh, Icy road, on. van flipped, yeah. and a couple injuries, and one of his campaign volunteers actually died. And so the idea, and Carson brought this up in the debate, you know, the idea that he would suspend his campaign the day of the caucus um, with all the work that went into it, including the sacrifices that were made, the ultimate sacrifice by someone that was supporting him, I mean, that's uh, it's pretty unbelievable. And the fact they'd run with that story, despite a lack of any and all evidence, was just sincere political opportunism <laughs> at its absolute worst. And then it's not even like this was admitted or owned up, or, you know, it was some underling that did this, and Ted Cruz fired him the next day and said, this is unacceptable. To um to what I know, no one has been fired. No one has taken outright accountability for this. Ted Cruz continues to obfuscate the timeline of what happened and continues to blame CNN, despite the fact CNN never reported this. And there's detailed timelines online if people are interested in looking into this more. But yeah, it's uh, politics as usual from the consistent conservative. <laughs> well, to be fair, to be fair, though, Mike, Raphael did send out corrections after the polls had closed. <laughs> uh, so, um, you know, like how you can apply CPR to somebody four days dead and call yourself a doctor. So that is, you know, we just want to give the full rounded mm-hmm. out story. The thing that astonishes me too is, um, and I, I shouldn't be astonished. I really <laughs> I seem to have this perpetual ability to be astonished by gravity. But um, where are the Black Lives Matter people when it comes to um, a guy named Ted potentially having lied to steal an election from a black man. I mean, t- imagine if a guy named Ted had done that to Barack Obama. They would be going mental. You've taken away the black man's voice. Uh, you, you, have, you have lied uh, about this guy who, you know, you said he's dropping out and he just pulled in, what, $23 million over the last quarter. Um, you, you disenfranchised this black guy who's a forerunner uh, in a presidential race. And, uh, but not, I don't hear, I didn't hear any protests from the left because of course you're only black if you're on the left. Otherwise, I don't know, what are you, an Oreo, an Uncle Tom, a sellout, whatever it is, right? But it just goes to show that the Black Lives Matter uh, is only lefty Black Lives Matter, criminal Black Lives Matter, welfare dependent Black Lives Matter, people who vote Democrat Black Lives Matter. But uh, Dr. Ben Carson, who last time I checked was a little on the darker shade of pale, uh, his uh, disenfranchisement in this process hasn't seemed to matter at all to black activists anywhere. Yep, and the same thing applies to women. You can look at all the wonderful things that Sarah Palin was called uh, <laughs> after she endorsed Donald Trump, all the the heat that people like Phyllis Schlafly and Ann Coulter, and you can throw Ayn Rand in there as well. If if you're a woman and you're on the right, you know, you're not an out-and-out lefty, you're going to be attacked with everything under the sun and the typical rules of don't say that about a black man, don't say that about a woman, certainly don't apply to the leftist media. Eh, feminism is just socialism in granny panties. But um, the, the, this, this was also quite astonishing as well because um, Madeleine Albright, um, look her up. Uh, just anyway, I don't give my opinion of her. But uh, she was saying uh, recently uh, that uh, there's a special place in hell for women who don't support other women. And by that, she meant vote left for Hillary Clinton. And so that to me is quite an astonishing thing. Uh, when you look at 
the degree to which everyone says, well, Hispanics don't like Donald Trump because of his stance on immigration, even though that's actually not true. A lot of Hispanics don't want to see low rent Hispanics following them over the border. They kind of move to get away from Mexico. They don't want Mexico following them. But the idea that Hispanics are all this one voter block, they're all going to vote and Muslims are all going to vote this way and don't annoy them because they're just one giant brain with, uh, you know, one single brain with a whole bunch of um, hands, uh, that, that this in-group preference for the Hispanics, for the Muslims, uh, that the gays are going to vote this way, that the women must vote for the woman, uh, although I don't believe Carly Fiorina was mentioned much in that because, of course, she's not a lefty. But this idea that there's this significant in-group preference for every group except in general white males, I think is an important lesson to be learned because she said, you got to support women. Women have to support women. In other words, you just, you know, scan, vote for the closest vagina on a podium. That's if there's a vagina on the podium, you <laughs> kneel. But that is your mecca. That vagina on the podium, that's all it should be. You know, just one big, you know, labia flag floating above a podium and you vote for that unless it's Carly Fiorina, in which case you're going to eviscerate her. So that kind of in-group preference to me, I think, is really, really important. At the same time, they say never judge a group collectively. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, that to me is astonishing. Well, you can't, avo- you can't offend the Hispanics because all Hispanics are for a path to citizenship. All Hispanics want the border to be left open. All Hispanics are in favor of uh, sanctuary cities, which is not true, but this is what they say. But at the same time, you can never, ever judge Hispanics collectively. <laughs> it's like, what, aren't you just making the case that prejudice makes perfect sense because all Hispanics and all women either do or should think the same? So how on earth can we not judge people collectively when this entire label is being circled around and everyone's being squished into it? <laughs> You know, Donald Trump comes out and says that some Mexican illegal immigrants are rapists. Yes, he said that. And now all Hispanics are rapists. And, uh, you know, (laughs) that collectivization is immediately extrapolated. And, um, yeah. It's, it's well, what were these numbers you dug up on these remittances? Because th- that is really quite astonishing that remittances are now l- like remittances, which is what the legal and illegal immigrants to the U.S. send back home to Mexico, that the remittances, money flowing into Mexico from Americans, uh, from Mexican-Americans uh, or just Mexican illegals, that the money flowing into Mexico exceeds the Mexican government's revenue from its oil exports. Was that, was that correct? Yeah, this is actually brand new. And um, this is one of the things that Trump is talking about when it comes to getting Mexico to pay for the wall. People don't understand the degree to which the Mexican economy is completely dependent on the United States economy. And one of the main ways is remittances. And you have people, whether they're in the country legally or uh, illegally, Um, from Mexico that send a lot of money back home. So remittances sent home from Mexicans working outside the country surpassed petroleum revenues in 2015 for the first time. There is a 4.75% increase in money sent from abroad, most of which comes from the U.S., to total uh, $24.8 billion from last year, which is up from $23.6 billion in 2014. And that's according to the Bank of Mexico. So you have, you have almost $25 billion being sent just from the U.S. to Mexico in the form of remittances. You know, someone working in the United States sends it back home to mom and dad, that type of thing. That's a massive subsidy to the Mexican economy, which... You know, how much of that money is welfare payments? How much of that money is earned in the market working? Um, Looking at the welfare numbers for illegal and um, legal Mexican immigrants, it's uh, it's not everyone that's just outright working, (laughs) working hard 16 hours a day. So a lot of money going back and their economy is incredibly dependent on the U.S. 
which is an incentive as to why they send people. Like, why does Mexico mm-hmm. facilitate the passage of illegal immigrants into America? Because those illegal immigrants sent money back to Mexico, which the Mexican government has become increasingly dependent on for its survival. And the, the th- so the thing that the, you, you have to look at Mexico like it's Puerto Rico, which is a giant welfare state. Because what happens is, yeah, the, the illegal immigrants uh, are taking welfare at the rate of 60 uh, percent uh, plus. And uh, so, yeah, you're being taxed, right? Like if you're uh, not in this particular demographic, you're being taxed so that uh, money can go through the welfare state to the Mexican government, who then use it to fund more people to come into the country to go on welfare so that you can be taxed so that they can, I think you get the general flow mm-hmm. of money here. And the benefit of this, of course, to the native uh, population, particularly to the white population, is like, well, of course you'd, <laughs> of course you'd want to stop that. I mean, how insane would it be otherwise? You know, if, if it is, a, if there's a special place in hell for uh, women who don't support other women who are on the left, who are Hillary, uh, then... Um, you know, what What other groups in society might at some point wake up, wasps <laughs> might wake up and suddenly say, gee, I wonder if we have a collective self-interest that we should pursue just like everyone else is doing. And I think if it shakes out, if it shakes out that it's Bernie versus Donald, if it's uh, Sanders versus Trump, I think the takers and the makers are going to be squaring off in a truly intergalactic cage match that may very well determine the future. And I say that knowing full well that I, in the past, have said that um, politics is, is nonsense and voting is nonsense. May still, it may well be, still. However, it's one thing to say to somebody who's swinging a yo-yo at a building saying, listen, you're not going to be able to knock that thing down. It's kind of another thing when a weirdly haired wrecking ball comes along and you actually have a chance. So uh, I just wanted to sort of mention that. Again, I remain agnostic and on the fence, but uh, there are so many new things in American politics when you have a lifelong mostly free market guy facing a guy who's never had a job outside the public sector uh, and who is an out-and-out bribocracy socialist, uh, it's hard not to get interested when it's not one shade of gray versus another, but kind of black and white. I mean, it's, for me, again, it's, it's hard not to, not to get interested in that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And Donald Trump, again, uh, Donald Trump, one of the interesting things about him that people still don't seem to fully grasp and understand the fact that he's completely unprecedented in American history by the fact he isn't taking campaign donations from lobbyists. And the fact that you have someone who's not doing that that's actually successful and able to climb in the polls, there that has never happened before and probably will never happen again. <laughs> someone with this amount of media experience, this amount of, um, frankly, bravery to talk about issues that the American people want to have discussed that no one is willing to discuss because you'll be called a racist, you'll be called a sexist. I don't think there's a pejorative that could be thrown at Donald Trump that hasn't been thrown at Donald Trump. And he's going out there and he's taking these bullets to talk about these issues, whether you agree with his stance on them or not. His bravery in bringing this stuff up, I think, needs to be respected. Yeah, he doesn't need to do any of this. I mean, he's got a pretty wife. He's got a seemingly nice family. He works with his kids. Uh, His children seem to like and respect him and don't seem to squirm out of his embrace uh, like he's some sort of uh, battering ram. Uh, And um, You know, it's funny, too, someone whose standard of living will actually decrease by uh, becoming president, as opposed to all these political wonks and hacks that, you know, the only thing they do is run for office or all the free market people, 
you know, they talk about the virtues of the free market, but they haven't actually worked in the free market for 15 days to save their damn life. <laughs> they're all in, uh, you know, protected licensed unions or, you know, they're working as policy advisors or they're involved in some level of state or federal government. It's just like, yeah, you know, I'd, uh, I believe that you were actually a fan of the free market if you actually spent some time in it as opposed to clinging to the government welfare teat <laughs> with every fiber of your being. Well, the, I mean, the idea that Donald Trump may be doing this because he genuinely cares about a country, wants to leave it more free for his kids and so on, I don't know. Nobody can be a mind reader, but nope. it's not outside the realm of possibility. And it's just fascinating to see everybody, when someone comes along who may even remotely be idealistic, uh, and he is, of course, taking on the toughest issues and changing the conversation of American politics significantly, um, the fact that he is doing this when it's costing him uh, personally, financially, but politically. Uh, he's not able to – he's abandoned his business, which he spent like 40 years building up. Um, the fact that he may be doing this for somewhat idealistic reasons, I think uh, – you know, I mean people were willing to extend that and I think rightly so to Ron Paul in many ways, to Rand Paul. But to Donald Trump, it's just, it, it just shows you just how cynical people have become about politics of the idea that somebody might be – idealistic. Uh, and he's not out there buying votes as far as I, he said he's going to maintain the, the sort of um, uh, Social Security and, and other of the um, entitlement programs and so on. But um, he's not out there saying, I'm going to give a whole bunch of people a whole bunch of specialized stuff, you know, like Bernie Sanders is. Let's get money out of politics. I'm going to pay if you student loan. Well, which is it, Bernie? Can't figure out where you're coming from. It's um, always amusing, too, when there's politicians that say, you know, we're going to get rid of Social Security, or we're going to cut this entitlement or that entitlement. And they haven't accomplished anything of note, either in the free market or politically previous. It's so like, I'm going to do this. I want a unicorn. I want a puppy. Yeah, he's saying things that a lot of people don't want to hear. And the fact that he's succeeding in politics, it means that, you know, prior to Trump, politics you're doing it wrong, you know, if, if you actually sort of want to not, like, serve your constituents, if you want to just set up your power base and all that, and of course, right? So I do, I do think that this is a, a fascinating time in politics, and I guess we could just close off by talking about Rubio, 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 Rubio. Sorry, oh, oh. I had to reboot there for a moment. Uh, that, was, that was an amazing moment. I mean, when, when he basically just, uh, you could see him, you know, like uh, rebooting uh, instantly, flash drive back into his 25-second memorized speech about Obama knows exactly what he's doing. He's trying to turn this country into the rest of the world. Uh, can you pick up some milk? Obama knows exactly what he's doing. He wants to turn up, hey, you know, you just repeated yourself, right? Obama knows exactly. I mean, it's like, wow, what a, a weird place to go to. I mean, if somebody calls you out live for doing the canned speech, calls you out while you're doing the canned speech, <laughs> don't do the canned speech again in the same debate. <laughs> Without, you did it four times, the same yeah. thing. And yes, all politicians repeat themselves. But uh, man, he walked right into that one. And, you know, Marco Rubio, whose biggest draw and attraction is, boy, he says things nicely and he looks purdy. Um, to just <laughs> narrow it down. Uh, yeah, he shot himself in the foot in the last debate. It's not like he's running on legislative accomplishments or achievements, considering the only accomplishment he had as a senator, is the Gang of Eight bill, which he's trying to distance himself from as much as possible because it strongly goes against the main topic that people want to talk about in this election season, which is immigration, and he wanted to provide a path to citizenship to everybody. So he's not running on legislative achievements. He's running on, I say things nice. And, uh, well, he didn't say things very nicely in that debate. And Chris Christie, oh, the lovable mobster politician that he is, completely eviscerated him. And uh, just from a sheer political theater and entertainment standpoint, I got to say that... Uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> it was pretty amusing. Well, you know, it's funny because I haven't really, you know, we did a show on the Bridgegate scandal, which I think is one of his big challenges in this election. I've never really thought that much about the guy, uh, but uh, and I've, I've never really warmed to him, uh, but I kind of warmed to him in this. And I first of thought I was warming to him because it's like, okay, this is the kind of guy who comes around and you, you better pay him 500 bucks a month or something bad might happen to your restaurant. <laughs> but um, I actually thought he was uh, pretty powerful in that debate and, and casual. Now, his sort of trick of staring directly into your eyeballs and uh, attempting to New Jersey his way into your soul <laughs> is uh, something that's a little habitual and repetitive. And it's, and it's tough. You know, it's tough. I, I've sort of I faced this in my own little way, just not wanting to repeat myself. Because we've all known people in our lives who tell you the same jokes and the same stories, uh, sometimes days or even less apart without noticing it. It was really disconcerting. Uh, but um, I liked some of his spontaneity. Oh, there it is. There's that 25-second speech. And it's just like, Rubio, stop. Whatever you're doing, feign a heart attack. Uh, get an <laughs> aneurysm. Uh, pretend to be demonically possessed and then have uh, Kisic uh, fight it off for you with some incantation from, from the church. But do so, th- just whatever you're doing. Please stop doing it right now, because what you're doing is you're showing people how you handle pressure. And um, for most people, I would imagine there's some pressure involved in being the leader of the free world and in charge of nukes. And um, boy, that was that was a pretty pivotal moment. And the fact is that he also didn't own it afterwards, but he kind of doubled down. He said, I'll keep saying it. I'll say it more. You want me to say it now? I'll say it again. I'll make it your ringtone against your will, because I know the NSA people in the NSA. Uh, and the fact that he didn't just say, wow, that was just a complete brain fart. I mean, that was just – that was not good, right? I mean, the well, fact – Well, you can say the down. same thing that uh, he communicated, but say it, you know, it, using different words. That is possible. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, and it might actually be helpful because if you repeat it four times and people still don't get it, you know, you might want to use different verbiage or explain it a different way or use a metaphor or something. Try and illustrate the point and why you feel the point's important as opposed to just sounding like a broken record. And uh, to the point where you're being dubbed a robot and imploding your entire campaign. <laughs> And aren't there people showing up in robot suits outside his rallies now? Yes, there are. And at the, at the primary voting areas, people dressed in uh, robot costumes. It's beautiful. Yeah, that's, um, that's a shame. I mean, that's a nicely shellacked half-helmet hair that he's got going there. But uh, Just think of all that lobbyist money that has gone into this, and then just poof, you might as well ignite it on fire. It's oh, such a shame. <laughs> such a shame. Well, and of course, now they also know his, his weak spots. And uh, once you've shown that kind of smoke belly flank to your opponents, they're going to have a whole lot of black arrows on top of towers. Can you fathom? Because all the politicians repeat themselves. I mean, especially the ones that give tons of media. If you've heard Trump, I mean, he gives the same, you know, apparently America doesn't back win. From China. Yeah, you know, it's shocking. And, and, you know, you do have to do that. If, uh, you know, people aren't hearing you on a regular basis, you do need to hit your, your points consistently. And that's something all politicians do. And now you're going to have Rubio, who's going to be incredibly self-conscious whenever he repeats himself it's gonna be uh, uh, there it is again they've, they've completely neutered him and just from yeah. you know running effective political opposition in a completely amoral way it's just fascinating to watch the ways in which various candidates have been neutered you know jeb bush is low energy so now he's oh oh he tries to you know tries to really fight back and be vigorous and then he could be dismissed immediately with oh look you're showing more energy it just completely eviscerates him then and there rubio now is a robot who if he repeats himself oh look it's happening again and it's completely dismissed it's, uh, it's people are going to be watching for it, and yeah. and if he if he relies on repeated and memorized speeches a lot, then people are going to and he knows the compilation clip is going to come up. Even if it was like a speech two years ago where he used similar phrases, it's just 
I mean, if they get in his head, right, this is a great mm-hmm. challenge when you're any kind of public figure. You don't let people get in your head. You've got to be spontaneous, think for yourself, and don't have the yammering masses in there running interference because, you know, they'll, uh, you know, they'll gop block you pretty quickly. Otherwise, GOP block, that's – anyway. Okay, so last thing I wanted to mention, okay, after that was um, this uh, boy. I, do, do, do most of the Republicans feel that they're in a Seth Rogen movie and that their main goal is to simply blow up North Korea? That – seemed really you know what would your response be to north korea and the guy's just like pushing a button like he's on jeopardy and knows the answer thinking it's something that's going to launch a nuke they really did seem to want to blow up a whole lot of north koreans um and the guy who who didn't there was a couple of people who didn't say that but the the main guy who didn't say that who didn't say let's nuke was uh, donald trump of course everyone's saying oh would you give donald trump the nuclear codes right um Although, of course, as I've mentioned before, it was a Democrat who actually dropped nukes in the past. But um, he said, no, he said, let China deal with it. You know, we've got most favored nation uh, trading status with, with China. We've got a lot of leverage with them. They depend on us. And they have much, as much control over North Korea as we have over Puerto Rico. So uh, they can go in and fix it. And if they don't, uh, we can threaten trade sanctions and so on. So that is a pretty anti-war approach to the problem. I don't think that Donald Trump really got much credit for that, but uh, it seemed like an imaginative and creative solution to a pretty thorny problem. Yeah, the one thing you have to hold your nose during Republican debate about is all the, you know, we want to make sand glow in the dark comments. Those are always wonderful. And uh, yeah, it was uh, pretty distressing to see the degree to which people were interested in launching a preemptive attack on North Korea. It's like, you know... uh, (laughs) (sighs) It's like Iraq never happened. (laughs) No. And, uh, you know, are your kids, are the politicians' kids going to be the ones going over there and fighting these battles? And no, probably not. Not imagining it's going to happen. So that was pretty distressing, to put it mildly. It is, yeah. And I, the the, the female draft thing I've always found kind of interesting because women are, in general, pretty bad at this stuff. You know, they can't meet the physical requirements at 40% less upper body strength than men. And even when they can, they're subject to more depression, uh, anxiety, and PTSD. Uh, Suicide compact. rates as well. Suicide rates are very high. Mm-hmm. Not to mention, of course, that there are problems with uh, sexual harassment and rape in the military that are not inconsiderable, which you don't get nearly as much, of course, with an all-male force. But it's interesting to me, and this sort of ties into the European situation just a little bit, which is that um, when people are reminded that only men are subject to the draft, it's a little hard to say, equal pay for equal value, which, of course, has been the law in America for uh, since the 1960s, I think. But um, equal death for equal genders is something that people have a real challenge with. I don't think it'll ever happen. The draft's not coming back anytime soon, I don't think. Uh, But the degree to which it might affect women would be uh, pretty interesting. But uh, there is, and this is what uh, Phyllis Schlafly, of course, won in her opposition to the EPA, which was equal rights for men and women, equal responsibilities for men and women. She said, listen, this is going to subject women to the draft. And she kept hammering that point to the point where the EPA was um, uh, fail, failed to ratify after it first passed because in a few states backed out. And that's fascinating. And this comes back to this comment that we had about what's going on when people would say, well, why didn't the European men defend the women uh, against the Muslim grab bag of um, uh, sexually inappropriate people uh, in in Cologne and other cities across um, Europe uh, in uh, in New Year's Eve? You know, 95% of Egyptian women report being sexually harassed. So, yeah, uh, it is a kind of uh, grabby culture, to put it mildly. And the question, of course, came back, which was, okay, well, if men are supposed to defend women, what special privileges do we get in return for that service, right? Is everything equal except men have to then go and risk their lives to defend strange women? 
Okay, well, uh, then, then everything isn't equal because that's kind of a significant problem. And um, it's the same thing with the draft. Like if only men are subject to the draft, okay, that's scarcely patriarchy. Then what special privileges do men get in return for being susceptible to the draft? But then you go down a whole rabbit hole of gender inequalities. And uh, even fun, f- fascinating to see that even the Republicans are um, blanching at that. Of course, you know, I mean, I would say, of course, you shouldn't have. I mean, there's no successful army in the world that's ever had women on the front lines. I mean, it's ridiculous. But um, yeah, it's fascinating to see how far the Republicans have gone down the politically correct rabbit hole to the point where they can't even push back against that. No, the one privilege that men get for being subjected to the draft is the privilege of being called misogynist. Yay. I'm not going to take that trade on average, but <laughs> hey, you know, right. it is what it is. <laughs> so are you going to keep watching, do you think? Uh, you can't help but keep watching at this point. I mean, whether or not you like any of the politicians, whether or not you're a Bernie Sanders fan or a Donald Trump fan or you like Ted Cruz or whatever the deal is, what's happening right now is pretty important for the future of the United States and the world at large. You know, the migrant crisis isn't going away. Um, this is one of those things that a lot of people are going to find themselves on the wrong side of history about. The people that want to stick their head in the sand and go, you know, everyone's exactly the same. There's no difference between cultures. IQ doesn't matter. You know, inbreeding Inbreeding doesn't doesn't matter. matter. Yeah, there's a lot of people that just want to, you know, everyone's exactly the same. They're an empty vessel that we can pour any amount of water into and it's going to, you know, maintain whatever shape. It's not the reality of it. And, you know, they're finding this out in Germany. They're finding this out in Sweden. And we're going to be finding this out in the United States as more and more refugees and more and more immigrants from backwards cultures, and just put it that way, come in and there continues to be lots of problems. And, you know, we'll see the degree to which people course correct and realize that they were wrong and, you know, then apologize to those that they shout down for being (laughs) racist or vile or, you know, how dare you talk about these issues. Um, This is pretty important stuff that's going to define, I mean, not only this election, but probably the next decade. And, you know, being aware of where people stand and the information at large, incredibly important, incredibly relevant. And, uh, you know, if it does come down to Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders, talk about a swing. We know America's polarized as it stands currently. That's That's a bigger swing than I think anyone could have anticipated leading into this election cycle. Hillary was inevitable, and, you know, Jeb Bush may be floating in there. They're pretty much the same person, just one wears a pantsuit. Uh, <laughs> they're all taking money. They all support the same big corporate interests, um, but there's a different veneer on it. But Bernie Sanders versus Donald Trump, which looks like it's a possibility now. Um, Trump, Trump certainly seems at this point, to be the front-runner for the Republicans. And if he wins South Carolina upcoming this Saturday, it's going to be pretty difficult to stop him. And even though Bernie Sanders is not polling particularly well in a lot of these places compared to Hillary Clinton, there is the sort of Damocles hanging over Hillary Clinton's head when it comes to this FBI investigation regarding her emails that could come down at any moment, whether or not they decide to prosecute her or not. The decision is ultimately going to be made... um, by the FBI, and it's looking like there's going to be an indictment. The Attorney General, whether they prosecute her or not, it's going to have negative impact on her campaign. And her campaign is just a sinking ship right now. You know, it's just, let's hang on to the people that supported me eight years ago. Let's just, with grim death and Bernie Sanders, you know, just look at his rallies. I mean, whether or not, again, 
folks, whether or not you like Bernie Sanders, and I don't like Bernie Sanders, it's important to understand why Bernie Sanders is popular. And he's very popular right now. The fact that there's a lot of people very excited to come see this 70-year-old gray-haired man talk about socialism, it's very important. And understanding why that's the case and what that means for the culture at large is something you're going to want to do. So... Whether it's Donald Trump, whether it's Bernie Sanders, whether it's Hillary Clinton's implosion, whether it's Ted Cruz doing whatever Ted Cruz is doing, whatever election he's going to steal next, this stuff is important to pay attention to because, I mean, this election is going to decide where the United States and the world goes. And is it going to fall into a place where we pretend all cultures are the same and then you lead to lots of problems? Um, Lots more problems than you're going to get in the short term by, you know, maybe closing your borders. Or are we going to pretend that climate change is the biggest threat that the world is facing at large and stick our head in the sand and ignore the realities of different cultures coming in and creating issues? So it's well, an important. This is, uh, yeah, this is why, I mean, Hillary Clinton was like she she lost everyone except people over 65 and people making more than $200,000 a year <laughs> for reasons I can't possibly fathom and don't care to even research. But uh she was ridiculously unpopular, and this is why the fact that women are voting Bernie Sanders, uh, the leftist women are voting Bernie Sanders rather than Hillary Clinton, is what prompted uh, Gloria Steinem when she was on Bill Maher to say, well, but the girls are only going to Bernie Sanders rallies because that's where the boys are. I mean, this 81-year-old <sighs> radical feminist is now saying what women just follow penises around and can't think for themselves when it comes to political matters. And uh, that just goes to show you just, I mean, nothing to do with caring about women. It's all about expanding the Marxist agenda. And uh, hopefully feminism and the media will all be revealed to anybody with half a brain and one eyeball as a ridiculous series of manipulative leftists suck you into socialism, spit you out um, in body riddled bullets, (laughs) because uh, that's what happens in socialism in the long run. I hope this stuff will get revealed. And that, uh, to me, is the most interesting thing about this whole election cycle. But thanks. One of the things that people talk about is, you know, Republicans being disenfranchised with the Republican establishment. You hear that a lot. That's pretty common. But what you don't hear is the fact that there's a lot of on the ground liberals that are very upset at the Democratic establishment as well, people like Hillary Clinton, which is why someone like Bernie Sanders, who is very much a radical compared to the establishment, and is facing the same kind of opposition and pushback that Donald Trump is from the Republican establishment, the fact that he's popular just shows that everyone is very upset with the political process, status status quo at large. And uh, yeah, it's going to be very interesting to see what happens with Hillary and Bernie moving forward. And right now, the next deal, uh, Saturday, February 20th, the Democrats head to Nevada for their caucus, and the Republicans are heading to South Carolina for their next primary vote. So lots of delegates up for grabs there. And it does look like Trump is running away. I think he's got double-digit lead in Nevada currently. Or, excuse me, in South Carolina currently. Sorry, Mike, to interrupt. You don't want to say that Trump is running away because then Ted Cruz will say to all of his supporters that Trump has left the race. Uh, (laughs) I'd say running ahead. We've got to be really careful before whatever might be picked up by Ted Cruz's people is very, very important. Very important. Uh, So, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, and Hillary is currently polling better than Bernie in Nevada, but uh, we'll see. You know, the fact that she barely eked by on a couple of coin tosses, six coin tosses. What a system, by the way. You six all coin tosses, one in 3,100 chance. Six coin tosses went her way to decide Iowa. Wow. You, I understand if there's one one um, district that is so disputed that you have to do the coin toss, but if there's six of them, wouldn't you then just equally distribute three and three? Wouldn't that make the most sense? I mean... You know, the Bernie Sanders people that are upset about this, they have every right to be. It just shows how yeah. farcical the political process is at times. Um, but, yeah, 
It's going to be curious to see since she just sneaked by in Iowa and the fact that she got her backside handed to her in New Hampshire, what impact that has on the upcoming Nevada caucuses for the Democrats. And if the Bernie freight train is going to keep moving forward, throwing free goodies out the window at every turn, or if uh, Hillary Clinton is going to maintain her uh, inevitable, (laughs) inevitable run to the Democratic nomination. We shall see. We shall see, and we'll keep you posted. If you enjoy these chats, let us know. In the comments below, we provide no sources whatsoever for our completely unsubstantiated opinions. <laughs> but uh, remember, freedomainradio.com slash donate to help out the show. Or if you're doing some shopping, fdrurl.com slash Amazon to help us out. And here endeth the political exploration from Freedom Main Radio. Thanks, everyone, so much for watching. We'll talk to you soon.